sales managers must manage. The classic issues in management are all there for any sales manager. Hiring, onboarding, training and development, performance management, managing the team. If you're going to make a career in sales management, embrace that. I think the single quickest lever for increasing productivity in sales is making sure that as a manager, you take performance reviews seriously, that in the review you demonstrate that you're worthy of trust of your people in appraising their performance and giving them advice. And again, that's a trainable skill. Hello, and welcome to Growth Path. I'm your host, Michelle Tandler. Our guest for this coaching session is a friend and former professor of mine, Frank Cespedes. Frank is a senior lecturer at Harvard Business School, where he teaches a variety of MBA and executive courses on management, marketing, entrepreneurship, and sales. Before joining the faculty, he worked at the strategy consulting firm Bain & Company and was managing partner for the Center of Executive Development. An active investor, advisor, and board member, Frank is also a prolific writer. He's written six books, mostly on sales, we will link these in the show notes, and dozens of articles for publications like Harvard Business Review, The Wall Street Journal, Entrepreneur Magazine, and Fortune. He has also written more than 40 case studies for Harvard. In this conversation, Frank and I dive into one of his favorite topics and the subject of his latest book, Sales Management. He shares with us the professional, intellectual, and practical reasons for focusing a career on sales, challenges associated with learning and training, and how he believes selling is changing or not changing in an increasingly remote world. We discuss the challenging shift many salespeople make from individual contributor to management, the importance of creating a culture of excellence, and how integrating sales into the overall company strategy is mission critical in driving performance. We wrap with a discussion of how buyer behavior is changing in an increasingly data-rich omnichannel world and how that impacts the role salespeople must play. If any of these sections appeals to you more than another, feel free to check the show notes. We will include links to the key takeaways doc, as well as some timestamps so that you can skip ahead to the relevant part. I found this conversation absolutely fascinating, and I hope you will too. Let's dive in. Frank, it is great to see you. Thank you so much for joining as a guest star for Growth Path. It is an honor to have you here. Michelle, it is my delight to be with you, and uh, thank you very much for inviting me. So just as some context here, Frank was my professor in business school. He was one of the most beloved professors. And today, what we're going to focus on is management, but within the context of sales, which is his expertise. Um, Frank, why don't you maybe introduce yourself at a high level, because I don't know if I'll do it proper justice, and maybe you can kick us off. Well, my background, Michelle, is not terribly exotic. You know, I got my doctorate, started teaching at Harvard Business School. I was a marketing professor for over a decade, made my way up the hierarchy. And then I left with some others. We started a business. I ran that business for another 10 years, and we got lucky. When need be, I can spin this a different way. But the truth is, it was dumb luck. We sold at exactly the right time. Harvard then called me up and said, how'd you like to come back and be a professor again? And Michelle, I can assure you that being a professor at a decent school after you've made money is a good job. It is a good <laughs> life. <laughs> well, I know that you're dialing in from what I believe is your home in the Berkshires, correct? Correct. So you're, so you're on summer break. You know the old joke, the three best reasons uh, to be an academic are June, July, and August. I'm right in the middle of it. <laughs> Wonderful. So, all right. So what are you working on right now? Just before we dive into the conversation, I know you just wrote a book called Sales Management That Works. Are you mostly marketing that book or what are you doing these days? Well, I mean, really, through almost throughout my career, my topics for research and writing have been sales, marketing, strategy, and leadership. And um, that continues to be the trifecta that um, attracts my attention and effort. 
and really more and more sales. And that's essentially what I am doing now. Yeah. Well, if you Google you and you go to your Harvard website page, you see many books you've written. I think you've written six, correct? On that is correct. these topics? Yep. And dozens and dozens of articles, both for Harvard Business Review, but also a ton of other business-oriented publications. I think this is a good segue into my first question for you, which is, it's clear you have spent countless hours, you know, thousands or tens of thousands, studying, writing, and teaching about sales and sales management. So my question to you is, why? What is it about this topic that is so meaningful to you? And why are you dedicating your career to it? Well, I mean, basically three three reasons, I would say, in answer to your question. One is basically a professional reason, the other intellectual. And the third, I think, a very practical reason that ties to practice. But let me begin. When I use the word sales, I mean the activities in a company for customer acquisition and retention, you know, what a lot of people call business development. And, you know, as you know, you had to endure me uh, as a student when you were an MBA at HBS. I teach business management, and sales is absolutely central to that activity. Uh, you know, the, um, the management guru, Peter Drucker, in one of his writings says that customer acquisition is the only revenue-generating activity in most companies. Everything else is ultimately overhead. Now, Drucker may have overstated that a bit, but only by a bit. That is pretty much a fundamental core ground truth in business. So that's the professional reason. The intellectual reason is that because sales is so central to companies' survival and growth. I mean, think about it. In most organizations, um, the uh, sales forecasts and the ability of sales to meet those forecasts drives all the other resource allocations in the company, right? Uh, but because sales is so central, it's also at the heart of so many of the issues that you read about in Harvard Business Review, the Wall Street Journal, any other a business publication you pick up? How do we acquire and develop talent and keep it relevant in an increasingly fast-changing world? Uh, how do we respond flexibly but coherently to what the market is doing? Uh, Cross-functional alignment, the impact of big data, AI, all these other megatrends. Sales is sort of ground zero for that. So intellectually, it's interesting. And then I think there's a very practical practice issue here uh, and something we may want to talk about uh, in this session in more detail, but sales is not going away. It is not um, a digital eats physical world. The number of salespeople in the United States, for example, has consistently increased throughout the 21st century, even as the internet has become more accessible, broader bandwidth, etc. And if you look at the Bureau of Labor Statistics, the, uh, the number they cite for people that work in sales is, is almost certainly dramatically underestimated. Why? Because in a services-dominated economy, most people who do business development, who do customer acquisition for a living, are not labeled as salespeople for reporting purposes. They're called associates or managing directors or, you know, think about a bank. Everybody's a vice president in a bank. But most of what many of those people do is business development. So it's a topic that affects uh, the working lives uh, personally and professionally of tens of millions of people in this country and hundreds of millions worldwide. It's a big topic, and uh, I'm very, very happy to have made a career around that topic. Yeah, I think in your book, the statistic that you cited was that in 2019, the Bureau of Labor said that more than 11% of the country's labor force works in sales, and that doesn't include people with the title business development managing directors, VPs. Is that correct? 
Yeah. Yep. yep. That's exactly right. Yep. So easily more than 10% of the workforce. And it's a topic that, you know, it's funny. Um, if I remember correctly, there were very few courses on sales in business school. It Very few people from our class went into sales. It's sort of this part of the economy that can be a little bit like, um, I wouldn't call it a black box, but definitely a little mysterious to other parts of the business. At least that's what I've observed in my career in tech. Um, a lot of people don't understand a lot about how sales works. Yeah. No, I think you're right. And, um, you know, again, let me cite a little bit of data and some of the implications. But the last time I looked, which was about three and a half years ago when I started researching and writing the book that, you know, you're kind enough to reference, of the nearly 5,000 colleges and universities in the United States, less than 300 even offered a sales course, let alone a sales program. So this is an area that is a black box. I think that's actually a, um, a relevant phrase. It's an area where by definition, most people start out knowing very little about what they're going to get paid for. Now, compare that to many other business functions, right? If, for example, uh, you want to hire an engineer in a tech firm, you can go to a school and it's a little bit like walking into a food court. You know, what are you interested in? Electrical engineering, chemical engineering? You want to hire someone in finance or accounting? You can find people who majored in those topics. And by the way, the same is true for computer programmers, but not for sales. And that leads to the next factoid uh, that I'll talk about, and that is training and development. The reality is that companies spend a ton on this area. Uh, they spend 20% more per capita, per person, on sales training than any other function but the ROI on that investment is notoriously disappointing. And we may want to talk about some of the reasons why that is and what companies can do to, to get better at that. Because again, it's at the heart of a lot of management development, not just uh, for people carrying a bag in sales. Right. I think the number you cited in the book was $70 billion annually spent on training, some estimates as high as $90 billion, an average of about $1,500 per rep. I think it would be interesting to go into some of the issues around this spend and why it's not effective, um, and maybe how that relates to management. I think that, you know, I've been studying this area a little bit of sales training, uh, getting a feel for the exorbitant amounts that companies spend on bringing in these training firms. They bring in firms with expertise in some sort of method, whether, you know, it's the uh, the medic or the med pick or the Sandler method, or, you know, there's all these different firms out there that have these structures for how they teach. My understanding is they come in, they might even charge as high as $100,000 to train people for a couple days. And then I think in your book, you said something like 80% of it is uh, forgotten within 90 days. So maybe that's a good segue into the second question I want to ask you, which is about sales management and training. Why is training not working? And um, what's the role that management is playing in that? Yeah. Well, first of all, as a former professor of yours, let me urge you to be polite because the company I ran for over a decade and that made me a lot of money was in that space. So, you know, it takes a sinner oh boy. Uh, All to, right. uh, to explain. <laughs> Maybe I should rephrase uh, the question. That, <laughs> do you think I should rephrase the question? No, you Let don't need to. Let me go back to. and do that again. <laughs> no, okay. no, you're, 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 you phrased it correctly. Uh, let me explain some of the reasons why that ROI is disappointing. Um, the first reason is there's a significant over-reliance on classroom training. All right? Now, I say that as a professor who makes his living in the classroom. But in sales and in adult learning in particular, most development doesn't take place in a classroom, in a training seminar, etc. It's on the job learning. Why? Because it's about behaviors. This is ultimately a behavioral art. Talking about selling is not the same thing as selling. And by the way, this is an area where new technologies can really, really help and add significantly uh, to the ROI. The second reason why um, the ROI is disappointing 
is what you mentioned earlier. You alluded to this. The L&D people call this the forgetting curve. Now, the forgetting curve is an issue in all training. I mean, it's been documented. The research about this is very clear. You can see some of it uh, in, uh, in, in my book. But it's especially an issue in sales. Why? Salespeople have quotas. They're busy. Their compensation is tied to what they actually do or don't sell. It's a performance art. As a result, they tend to pay attention to information when and where they need it not weeks earlier or later in a training seminar. They pay attention to it usually on their way to make a sales call or during the actual sales conversation. That just-in-time learning is crucial. And again, this is an area where technology, supported by good learning processes, uh, can help. And then the third is, you know, the, uh, the typical way things work in the budgeting process in many companies leads to training in these bursts, right? And in sales, that's typically when we're introducing a new product or at the annual quota setting meeting. But meanwhile, during the other 364 days of the year, the market is going to do what the market will do for lots of reasons that are outside of the control of the company or the salesperson, but the salespeople have to respond to that. And again, this is an area where, um, where one can get uh, better and better if you use the new available technologies, but also know what you're doing. Uh, adult learning here is important. Salespeople learn the most, and I hate to say this, they don't learn it from professors or trainers or coaches. They can learn something there, but they ultimately learn the most from their peers. It's, uh, you know, it's a great example of what the learning people call modeling behavior. And what they're getting at, sales is a good example. I watch you, someone who's really good at this, make a sales call. And I say, wow, the way you dealt with that price objection, that was clever. I'm going to use that. Or the way you frame the value proposition I hadn't thought about that. That is a key driver of learning and professional development in this area. And part of the job of training is to accelerate the opportunities for doing that. And again, there are more and more ways for smart companies and smart people to do this. So I would, that's really interesting. I, that makes sense. How then is this remote world affecting sales teams. You know, you the the subtitle of your book is Sales Management That Works, How to Sell in a World That Never Stops Changing. We've gone through an enormous change now with so many sales teams going remote. I think even just today in the news, Salesforce announced they're reducing their space by an additional 20% in San Francisco. Their team is going remote first. How can people um, observe one another and learn from their peers when everyone's home alone? Yeah. Well, I'm a bit of a contrarian when it comes to this trend. I think there's, um, as usual in, in business talk, there's a lot of hype and then there's reality. There's a lot of sizzle, but then there's the stake. A uh, couple of things. One is, look, the, there's always been remote, right? I mean, you know, it's not as though Zoom and Google Meet are, are new things. They've been around for some years. And secondly, I think a lot of the talk about virtual selling utterly misunderstands why salespeople travel, all right? Uh, salespeople don't travel uh, to a client because they say, oh boy, here comes another airport. I mean, as you know, that gets old in a hurry. The fundamental reason why business development people travel to a client is their sense that if they don't, their competitor might, and therefore get an advantage. That is not going to go away, no matter how good um, the internet, or for that matter, the metaverse, 3D reality gets. That's just a competitive fact. Now, let's get back to what companies have learned during the pandemic. This is where I think we get to reality as opposed to vague hype about virtual selling. 
One of the things that I think many companies learned out of necessity during the pandemic is that, in effect, they were overpaying for many of the tasks in their sales models. In other words, turns out you don't need your most expensive enterprise salespeople doing lead generation. You can do that in an outbound model with much less expensive people or perhaps through various algorithms. There are a number of demos and meetings that we don't need to be there face-to-face. -face. We can do it online. Same is true with service. Now, I don't think that learning is going to go away. I do think that's a new normal. I don't think that means we're in a world of virtual selling, but it does mean we are increasingly in a hybrid world of online and offline, and this is true of buying as well. And then my third uh, and final comment about that topic, Michelle, you know, I get this, I get this question a lot. What's the most important thing reps have to know about, uh, about virtual selling? And uh, I get back to the basics. Ask yourself, how many people, you know, you, you graduated, um, was it almost a decade ago from HBS? You, you've had terrific experience. How many people have you met in business that know how to run a meeting? How many meetings have you been in where you say, boy, the, the guy or gal who ran that meeting really knows how to make most productive use of that 30, 45, 60 minutes. That's the fundamental task in virtual selling, learning how to run a meeting. And it's a, it's a set of skills that's important whether or not the meeting is conducted online or in person. So that is my advice about where the skills development and training and development have to go, not to learning about the buttons on Zoom or Google Meet or anything else. Get, get uh, you know, learn how to make the agenda as useful as possible. Fascinating. Well, we have an episode coming up on how to run a meeting. So now I'm additionally excited about that. Um, Let's let that's a good segue into what I wanted to ask you about sales management. You know, sales their job is to train, get everyone productive, get people up to speed on how to run an effective meeting. You know, at the highest level, what are the things that you think managers most need to focus on and work on today? Put another way, if the internet were going to cut out in five minutes, if you could send any one message now to sales managers out there, what would it be? Um, can I be a typical academic and say, can I have two things to say to them? Yes, two sounds great. All right. Um, it, it, most sales managers become managers after years as an individual contributor in sales. In fact, that's probably the major motivation for most people to go in to uh, sales as a line of work. Uh, there's a lot of autonomy when you're the individual contributor. If you make your numbers, they leave me alone. That's, that's attractive to a lot of people. But once you become a sales manager, by definition, this is what management is about, by definition, you have to get things done through others, not simply through your own efforts. Now, look, I've served on boards. I serve on boards. I, you know, I don't have to be humble about this. You know, once upon a time, I looked like Jimi Hendrix. I don't anymore. Uh, I've, I've seen a lot. The single biggest complaint about sales managers that I have heard throughout my career, we made Charlie or Charlotte the sales leader. He or she was a great salesperson. They continue to be a great salesperson but they don't manage. That's the major transition from being an individual contributor to a manager. And it's a big transition in multiple functions in business. It's a classic issue in people's development, but it's especially crucial in sales because again, that's why people go in there and that's how you, you demonstrate your ability to be a manager by being first that good individual contributor. So my first message that I would leave is if you decide to become a sales manager, A, 
recognize that reality and embrace it. Embrace the other administrative and management tasks that, uh, that come with that job. Um, then I guess the other thing uh, that I would say, and this is one element of management, but the most underutilized lever for affecting behavior in most organizations, in my experience, is performance reviews. And that's especially crucial in sales. Uh, you know, we're going through a lot of changes in buying journeys in most markets, the vast majority of markets. It's an omni-channel buying world. So most of the really important administration about who buys, why, and how is not lodged in the CRM system. That's a notoriously noisy, unreliable basis for that. It's lodged in the heads of the individual account managers, and that information only becomes visible and actionable when you do a good performance review. And it's a key requirement of most managers, but especially sales managers, and it's a very trainable skill. I mean, I learned this in the business I ran. I waited four years before bringing in someone to do this, and she was fantastic. Uh, she was, you know, a, a, an experienced HR executive. Uh, I thought she underpriced, but I didn't feel it was my responsibility to teach her how to charge more uh, for our organization, but a very, very trainable skill and fundamental to what managers do, but especially sales managers in a changing environment. Yeah. Performance management is something that very few people receive training on today. And when you talk about the administrative tasks, a lot of those are associated with performance management, right? Setting up criteria for the different skill sets, creating bands for different levels and compensation and allocating bonuses. And I mean, there's a lot of administration involved in management. Performance reviews are, I, I agree with you, some people take them very seriously and they can be extremely helpful and empowering for their direct reports. Other people really miss the opportunity to coach and give feedback and make sure that their direct reports are on the right path. Relatedly to that, I mean, you speak a lot about this in your book, and you also have a bunch of articles on performance management and performance reviews. What, what does excellence in this arena look like? What does it look like for sales management to take performance very seriously, to take performance management and reviews very seriously? Um, you know, what would you say a culture of excellence looks and feels like? Yeah. Well, you know, you're aware of the old uh, aphorism, culture eats strategy for breakfast. My opinion, that's not true. Culture eats strategy for breakfast, lunch, and dinner. All right. But I think it's important to recognize that any culture is not some kind of, uh, you know, spray that's in the air. Very often the way we talk about culture in business schools and in the literature generally almost makes it sound like it's some spiritual miasma that's just, you know, floating around in certain um, uh, organizations. Any culture is the sum of individual efforts and behaviors. Uh, and sales is very context specific. Now, once I say this, it's going to sound so obvious to our listeners but trust me, it's something that smart, well-educated people in business forget all the time. Selling software is different than selling capital goods, is different than selling professional services. Selling in North America is different than selling in Latin America, the Middle East, or Asia. So it's very, very context-specific. What that means is that there is no one culture of sales excellence. What counts is what's really relevant in your market with your products, given your company's strategy. But I think what's common, however, to um, very productive sales organizations, let's put it that way, is that the people that are running the organization, the people that are running sales, understand that sales is a key lever. In fact, if you look at the numbers, you could argue 
the key lever for strategy execution. Now, what are the implications there? One implication is it really helps to have a strategy, right? Um, one of the things I've learned in my career is that most companies say they have a strategy, but when you really look at what they're doing, they're basically saying, let's pick a big number and go for it. Well, you know, it is unfortunately a little more complicated than that. But given a reasonably coherent strategy, that's what sales and a sales culture needs to be aligned against. There is no such thing as effective selling if it's not connected to how we're going to increase enterprise value. And that's what I think the um, uh, cultures of sales excellence have in common. That recognition, that alignment, but how they achieve that alignment varies dramatically depending on the product, the market, the particular business strategy. You know, one way to think about what I've just said, it's an area where simply chasing best practices can be deceptive and dangerous, all right? What works there doesn't necessarily work here. Part of the job of managers is to understand their context, not the next one, but theirs, uh, uh, because it is a performance art. And part of the uh, responsibility of leaders, uh, and I'm now talking about the C-suite, is knowing the questions to ask about their sales model, not managing sales, They'll probably do a terrible job at that, but knowing the questions to ask. And I must say, based on my experience, um, uh, not all C-suites know what questions to ask about their own sales models, and that hurts them because one of the fundamental responsibilities of any senior executive is developing and executing a coherent business strategy. Very difficult to do that if you don't know how, what to ask about your go-to-market model. What are some questions that executives should be asking? Like if, you know, for, for anyone listening here who's, you know, a founder who hasn't received training in strategy or isn't particularly familiar with the exercise or activities that go into creating a really robust strategy, what are some basic level one questions you would recommend leaders ask their sales leaders? Well, the most important thing about sales uh, in any business is the buyer, not the seller, but the buyer. Who buys, why, and how? So the first set of questions always need to revolve around that. Do we know, and by the way, do we have agreement about who our buyer is and is not? Now, again, I'm going to get academic for a second, but if you take a strategy course in virtually any um, school, what I just described is in strategy jargon, that's called the scope of the business, where we play and where we don't play. But notice how scope is determined in an organization. It is not determined by a couple of senior people getting off in a room and talking about it at an annual strategy offsite. That's called brainstorming, right? At the end of the day, scope is determined by the aggregate call patterns of sales, where they do and do not allocate their time and effort. So you want to be asking questions about that. How do we deploy our salespeople? Where does most of the effort go? What do the selling cycles look like in those areas? Because again, that affects almost everything else in the organization. I'll give you a specific example that I think is timely. Um, we are clearly in an era of rising interest rates, right? For the last 12 years, interest rates in real terms after inflation have been negative. And by the way, that was a boon to tech companies and especially tech startups. You essentially had a lot of cash chasing companies. That's now flipping, right? The cost of capital is increasing significantly, etc. Now step back and think about this. What is the single biggest driver of financing needs in most companies and especially tech companies? Because in tech companies, after you do product development, this is 
very often anywhere from 60 to 80% of quarterly operating expenses. It's the selling cycle, biggest driver of cash in and cash out. Accounts uh, payable tend to accumulate during selling. Accounts receivables tend to be a function of what we sell, at what price, and how fast. Now, what are the implications in the environment that we're now in? If you can increase sales productivity and time to cash by one week, one month, that's a very, very big deal. If you're a finance executive, you want to be asking the questions about how we do it now and how can we do it better. If you're an operations executive, you want to understand that because you're dealing with the output of whatever the salespeople are doing. So those are the sorts of questions that these people need to be asking, not in some abstract intellectual exercise, because it's fundamental and core to what they have to manage as well. Right. When you look at it that way, that getting your reps you know, ramped one week faster can have a true impact on the bottom line of the business and thus the strategy, it makes it very clear why you are so passionate about training, management, performance management, and all the associated activities. Yeah. And, and by the way, I'm passionate about it because, you know, I also invest in companies. Uh, so if you're an investor, if you're a VC, if you're a private equity firm, <laughs> you also should be passionate about it because it's going <laughs> to affect your ability to, uh, uh, to create value and wealth. Right. So let's get back to something you were just saying about these rising interest rates. So clearly the economy is changing very quickly. And from what I can tell in a unique way, I've been reading up a lot and people are saying, you know, no two recessions are the same. What is changing right now in the world of sales related to the broader macroeconomic outlook and um, what is not changing? And relatedly, how can companies and management prepare for the next couple of years? Yeah, uh, you know, a couple of things. I'm going to phrase this uh, next comment, Michelle, as bluntly as possible, and I'm willing to uh, stand behind it. But, you know, during the last two and a half to three years, as a result of a once in a century pandemic, we have been inundated by all of these pundits giving us their pronouncements about so-called new normals. What I want to suggest to our listeners, I'm going to use finance terminology, apply a very, very high discount factor to that. Most of what you're hearing about new normals, in my view, is absolute nonsense. It is not based on any data. And it's basically what some journalist or academic thinks should happen, as opposed to, you know, what is really going on uh, in the market. Let me give you a specific example and then um, uh, uh, address directly your question. Obviously, or at least it seems obvious to me, that, uh, you know, when stores are closed or when they're held to 25 to 50% of their capacity, when people feel that if they go into a store, they may catch a virus and bad things will happen, obviously you're going to see more buying and selling occur online. But if you look at the data, e-commerce, even as a percentage of retail sales, never went above about 15.5% during the pandemic. That was the second quarter of 2020, and it has been trending down every quarter since. So it is simply, again, as I said earlier, it is not a digital eats physical world. What is changing and what the pandemic accelerated is an omni-channel buying world. That was, that was you know, more or less becoming uh, the reality before the pandemic. The pandemic accelerated that fundamental reality. By the way, among other things, what it did, and this I think is especially relevant to tech firms, it made online marketing channels increasingly cluttered, 
increasingly expensive, and frankly, a classic example of the law of diminishing returns. There is, as we speak, a joke making its way among CMOs, chief marketing officers in Silicon Valley. And the joke is, where is the best place to bury a body? And the answer is page two of Google or Amazon, because nobody goes there. You know, that's likely where we'll find Jimmy Hoffa, <laughs> right? That, that is a reality. Okay. Now, <clears throat> the big thing that's changing is buying. That It's changing because of technology, right? It's also changing because of the sustained data revolution that will continue throughout our careers and lifetimes. Now, this, again, does not mean that it's digital leads physical. I showed you the data about e-commerce, for example. But it is a big deal. It's a big deal in sales. The days of a salesperson essentially being a kind of organic, walking, talking version of product and price information, those days are disappearing in a hurry because the buyer in both consumer and B2B markets can get that information through one or two or three clicks. The rep has to add more value in the more limited time that they have available for actual customer contact, whether that customer contact is in person or online. Now that's a big deal. It affects hiring. Sales is becoming a more data-intensive activity because the customer has the data. It affects training and development. It affects go-to-market. You know, you want to be a sales manager these days, the odds are very high that you're not only managing whatever is your direct sales channel, you're also managing, I'll use the tech jargon, the ecosystem, the various channel partners. That's a big deal. It affects pricing. So again, those are what I think uh, are um, uh, the big changes, but also what is not changing, because I think there's a lot of misunderstanding uh, about this in the business press in general. That's an absolutely fascinating answer, Frank. Something that really caught my attention here is about how you're saying that what's changing is that it's becoming increasingly data-driven, that the go-to-market approach is changing. It's becoming more of an omni-channel buying world. And that basically the way that a company goes to market is shifting. Relatedly to that, how, you know, what is, would you say these days when sales is becoming increasingly integrated into other parts of the business around go-to-market, what is making sales similar or different from other divisions of a business? You know, what still remains very separate versus what is getting increasingly incorporated, if that makes sense? I think you phrased it uh, correctly, in my view, increasingly integrated. First, let me talk about what I'll call the historical legacy here, and then, you know, what's changing and what some of the implications are. The reality in most companies is that sales for decades was, in effect, a kind of silo. All right. Uh, the anecdote that I'm about to relate to you, I have experienced in different, slightly different language on three different boards that I've sat on. The head of sales, business development, chief revenue officer, whatever you want to call it, has to make a presentation to the board. He or she does that. Then the board goes into executive session, where, as you know, that's where they really uh, discuss things. And on three different occasions like that, the basic discussion was, well, I'm not sure he really understood the question. I'm not sure she really understands how we expect to add enterprise value here. But he, she makes their numbers every quarter. Let's leave them alone. Those days are passing. And they're passing because, again, of the data revolution. A specific example. Um, that data increasingly goes up through the finance function in companies. And as I'm sure you've discovered in your career thus far, finance people are very, very annoying people. Once they get data, they start to ask questions. Well, how do you spend all this money? What is your selling cycle? 
tell you, I understand what you're telling me about top line volume. But by the way, what we really need to focus on is return on invested capital. Show me that. The point, I think, is that the requirements for financial literacy in sales are increasing dramatically. If you want to make a career there going forward, if you're less than 40 years old, uh, you better make sure that you understand uh, what I call managerial finance, not investment banking finance, which is what you really learn when you get an MBA, but managerial finance, cash in, cash out, how to read the balance sheet and the income statement. It's, it's very important. The second thing, and this is the increasingly integrated, because customers in an omni-channel buying world can touch their suppliers in multiple ways. Think about most buying journeys these days, right? The buyer is online and offline at multiple times during their buying journey. They're dealing not only with your salespeople, but with influencers or buying forums or others in the company, sales is increasingly a cross-functional activity. And the reason for that, and I'm going to date myself with this uh, analogy, but it's what I call the Ghostbusters reason. You may remember that wonderful film, Ghostbusters. You know, remember, remember the tagline. I, you know, when I you just watched it last weekend. Oh, it's great. I just watched Murray it last Brilliant. weekend for the first time. Absolutely yeah. loved it. Yeah. But remember, when you see a ghost, who are you going to call, right? You're going to call oh, I was just had that running through my head. Who are you yeah. going to call? But, but that, that's, what's going on with, that's what's going on with buying. What, what the research tells us is that most of the time, and by most I mean in excess of 80%, when the buyer has an issue, who do they call? They call the person who sold them the product or service in the first place. So it doesn't really matter what the job description says. The de facto requirement increasingly in many sales jobs is to go back into their organization, cross the relevant internal organizational boundaries, and get it fixed. And anybody who's ever run a company or for that matter, worked in a company, can always tell you that getting that kind of cross-functional alignment is not easy, but it's increasingly part of sales tasks. So that's those are the areas that are changing, the uh, financial literacy requirements, and it's increasingly a cross-functional activity. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Very interesting. Well, we've covered a lot of ground here. Um, and there's a tremendous wealth of information that you have. I think, you know, maybe to wrap us up, I'd be curious if you have any last pieces of advice for sales managers, you know, to put it into your famous phrase, so what, now what? Well, I've already given some of that uh, advice. Uh, one is, you know, recognize what it is you do as a sales manager. Sales managers must manage. And really, it's a great example of uh, many of the things that I know that you're um, uh, doing uh, with your venture. The, the classic issues in management are all there for any sales manager. Hiring, onboarding, training and development, performance management, managing the team. If you're going to make a career in sales management, embrace that. The second thing that I would say, and this is, uh, again, something I mentioned earlier, but I think the single um, quickest lever for uh, increasing productivity in sales is making sure that as a manager, you take performance reviews seriously and you know how to do it, that in the review, you demonstrate that you're worthy of trust of your people in appraising their performance and giving them advice. And this is especially an issue in sales. Sales managers have to meet their numbers, right? They got to meet their numbers depending on the company 
uh, quarterly, sometimes even monthly. They're very, very busy. And as a result, and this is the classic complaint that HR managers have about sales managers, they do what I would call drive-by reviews. Now, when they do that, they're doing two things. One is they're perpetuating a culture of underperformance. And secondly, and I want to get back to what I said uh, earlier about relevant data, they're also inhibiting the flow of vital buying information to the rest of the company. So that's, you know, that's where I would begin. Recognize you're now a manager and within management, probably your single biggest lever for affecting behavior is doing good performance reviews. And again, that's a trainable skill. There really is, in my opinion, not, you know, not a good excuse uh, for, not, uh, for not becoming proficient at that if you're going to be a manager in general and a sales manager in particular. I love that. Demonstrate you are worthy of your people. That is such a mantra. And I love your phrase, sales managers must manage. This has been an absolutely fascinating conversation, Frank. I think this is a, probably a great place to pause. I'm sure we could talk for hours on this topic, but I think this will already be a lot for people to digest. There's just so much here. So I think uh, unless if you have any last comments you'd like to make, maybe we call it a wrap. Well, you know, uh, I guess my last comment I uh, would be a farewell to our listeners. I had a guest in uh, one of my uh, courses about a year and a half ago, and I thought the way he said farewell to the students was terrific. You know, this was during the height of the pandemic. He said, now remember, stay positive, but test negative. So that would be my final comment to our listeners. I like it. All right. We will end there. Thank you so much. All right, everybody, that's a wrap for this conversation. If you found this interesting or useful, please feel free to share it with a colleague or friend or two. And if you'd like to access the key takeaways doc, click the link in the show notes of your podcast app. You can also find there a link to Frank's most recent book and his Amazon author page. If you'd like to be notified of future Growth Path sessions, please subscribe at www.growthpathlabs.com forward slash subscribe. Thanks so much for listening and hope to see you next time.